Yes, welcome back. This is Act Root to Fruit. I almost said something else, which wouldn't have been appropriate. So um, my name is Marcel, and I'm on a mission to excavate the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences so that uh, the fruit that us clinicians deliver is, is as pristine as possible. And I'm thrilled. I'm so excited for this chat today with the one and only Emily Sandoz. Uh, she is a fellow in the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences, probably one of the younger folks to ever be inducted as a fellow, I would imagine, and is a mover and shaker in the community. Currently at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, a associate professor, and um, they need to get their stuff together and just slap professor on the title. Yeah, in my in my humble opinion, and uh, author of several books, uh, important important research, and a, a thriving voice in the the conveyance of RFT. And so we're just I'm just thrilled thrilled for you to be here today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Marcel. I'm yeah, pumped. yeah. So so I you know I'm on this I'm on this journey and um, and it's kind of a guide approach and and so I've been I've been with different guides along the way to really understand <clears throat> the, the, the basis of, of this. It's, it's very difficult. And, and I, I, where should we start? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's so much to wrap our hands around here, right? You know, for me, I think that the, uh, the start is really the way that I've come to train over the years has been really starting with the philosophical foundations. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of places that people can start, and most of where we get trained, I think, as therapists is a couple of steps up from that. Um, but if we're here to figure out what contextual behavioral science is, then the first place that it diverges, I think, from other behavioral sciences is in that, uh, that contextual philosophy and kind of what that means, you know, yeah. and, and I think traditionally we haven't done a great job of, of teaching clinicians what the implications of that are in the room, you know, in the moment with yeah. a client, um, what that contextual philosophy brings to bear. Yeah, it's, it's my sense and, you know, I'm, I'm about four years in, five, five years in, I think, to my, to my uh, stumble through the woods here. And, uh, and my sense is it's like there's, there's all these goodies that, that drew me in and it's kind of like expected that I'm going to do the work to, to figure it out, what, to figure out what you just said. You know, I think that, I think that our, I think our intention was that the mid-level terms or the middle-level terms, when I say that, I mean mm -hmm. terms like psychological flexibility, mm -hmm. you know, the six component processes, cognitive yeah. diffusion, stuff like that. I think our hope was that those mid-level terms would do the job, that actually you wouldn't have to do all that underneath work because those terms would orient you in ways that are consistent with behavior analysis and in ways that are consistent with with uh, a contextual philosophy or a functional contextual philosophy i think that was kind of our hope but in mm -hmm. the same way that you might with a client um you know ask a question that you're hoping is going to function a particular way or give an assignment that you hope is going to function a, a particular way you know we don't always know what our words are going to going to mean or how they're going to function for our clients. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come back and say, 
don't worry, I did what you suggested. <laughs> what, wait, what did I say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what did you hear me suggest? You know, I left him. Wait, what? <laughs> That's the best thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. Right. So, or my so, favorite is my favorite is the, oh, I just stopped thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you said to do, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, you know, I think we don't always know how our words are going to function. And we took a page out of how clinicians are typically trained. Mm -hmm. um, tell them a story about how folks uh, get stuck, how they get lost. Um, we tell them a story about how folks get better. Mm -hmm. And we hope that that story will orient their behavior in, a, in the room in a way that, that helps their clients to get better and helps them to feel more effective and be more effective. You know, um, I think we made kind of a, a bet there. <laughs> mm -hmm. we, made, we made a, a hope, um, you know, there in, in hoping that those were the terms. Um, and, you know, if we're being honest, I mean, I think this is what folks in treatment development always do. Um, I love the account of Tim Beck when he first jumped from psychodynamic uh, psychotherapy to, to uh, cognitive. So are you familiar with this story? No, no. So he's like, he's doing, he's trained as a psychodynamic, you know, psychoanalyst guy. And he's sitting with this client that has a bunch of social anxiety and he's just so sick of it. Like he's just been hearing her day after day, you know, he's doing really dense kind of traditional, really dense uh, treatment, you know, lots of occasions. Um, and uh, he's just getting so, so tired of it. And he just decides to say something like, well, what if you're just wrong? Like, what if, what if you're really not, you know, socially incompetent? What if you just went out and just acted like, like you were wrong about that? You know, then what? Um, and the, you know, the myth goes that she sort of did that. And he was like, whoa, that was refreshing. Um, <laughs> and so he started doing it with more and more clients. This kind of like, well, what, what if that thought is the problem, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and the more that he did it and the more effective he felt like that was, then he sort of retroactively <laughs> looked back and said, okay, what am I doing? You know, and I think that, I think that that's what happens a lot of times in treatment development is you have these, these geniuses, these trailblazers that mm -hmm. do just really incredible stuff in the room. And then when people go, but what are you doing? Right? Like, how is that happening from a psychodynamic perspective? Or how is that happening from a behavioral perspective, whatever? they kind of have to pause and go, well, let me tell a new story about what's mm -hmm. happening there. Um, so I think we made a guess on the, on the mid-level terms that they would orient people in, in ways that are consistent with our, our philosophy and with our technical underpinnings. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that we've done that. I think mm -hmm. that a lot of folks, um, or that they've done that, that the terms have done that. I think a lot of folks land exactly where you're saying, where it's like, you know, okay, I'm here. I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> now I have to go get another degree, <laughs> um, to really, really be able to do the work that I see folks doing. You know, I see these, these masters sort of operating in a way that looks more like art and I don't understand how they got from these six terms to what it is that they're doing in the room I can maybe I can match it you know maybe I can sort it but how did they how did they think to say that in that moment hmm. um, and you know to me that's where that's where a basic behavioral account and really a basic sort of contextualist philosophy um, come in yeah yeah and so hmm which one of those two should we should we dive into right now? Let's go all the way to the bottom. Let's all start right. with the contextualist philosophy. Um, so so listen, you know, I think I think one thing to remember is that this is different from really every 
standpoint <laughs> that we take in, in the world. You know, most of, most of in the world, and certainly in sciences, um, we take this idea that the job, you know, that our job in sort of um, coming to understand something, whether it's, you know, me in the lab as a researcher or me in the therapy room with a client, mm -hmm. that my job in understanding something is to kind of uncover some truth, to wrap some words around the world that might not be the perfect fit, but that approximate the world in some way that mm -hmm. reflect the world in some way. We can call this um, something like the truth as mirrors um, sort of approach. Okay. So the idea that the right story, the right diagnosis, the right theoretical account, the right case conceptualization, you know, um, the right description of therapy processes, whatever, that those words are right if they reflect a true world, right? Mm -hmm. So the progress of science or an empirically supported treatment would be sort of banging out the warps. Like over time, we're gonna kind of correct the mirror and kind of bang out the little warps there so that it more and more closely reflects sort of the real world, you know, the true world that's out there. Um, and that is really the dominant position in science. And I think the dominant position of most therapists working in empirically supported treatments is if I'm doing it right, the words that I say about what's happening, even if I'm saying in, in my inside voice, <laughs> the words that I'm saying about what's happening are actually reflecting what's real in the world. So that there, there is an objective truth to be found. There's an objective truth to be found, and my job is to make the words that match that truth, right? Okay. That match that reality as, as close as possible. Um, and this orients us in a particular way in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm in the room um, and I have a client behaving in front of me, maybe in ways that are super evocative, you know, mm -hmm. maybe in ways that are super frustrating, like I can't make anything happen. Um, then what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be comparing ideas in my head <laughs> stories that I'm telling myself about what's happening, about what should be happening, about the diagnosis, about the conceptualization, whatever. I'm gonna be comparing what's happening in front of me to ideas in my head. And I call this playing the correspondence game. And this is what we do all the time, right? So this is what um, I'm doing when I'm listening to your questions and your comments. This is what you're doing when you're listening to me. It's what the audience is doing, listening mm -hmm. to me now. It's sort of listening to these ideas and saying, does this match sort of what's happening in my head? You know, does this match my ideas mm -hmm. about the world? Is there correspondence there? Um, is this story a mirror of how I experience the world or how I uh, think the world is? Um, and we don't have to do that. Um, there's actually like a whole nother approach that I was kind of hinting at earlier, in fact, um, the approach of taking those words, um, those stories that we tell about the world, our theories, our case conceptualizations, our diagnostic classifications, and asking us, asking ourselves instead, not do they reflect the world, um, but how do they work on the world? So the difference would be those stories or those words as mirrors versus those stories or those words as hammers right the idea that they are tools in and of themselves mm. that you would never ask yourself um, you know does the does the hammer reflect the nail <laughs> you know I'll know it's a good hammer when it looks looks just like the nail mm. so why would we take language and treat it in that way why would we take you know our stories um, why would we take our theories our case conceptualizations and ask ourselves if they reflect the world right if the job is to do a job if, if the if the let me start that again. If the job of those words is to help us do a job, 
right? Then why would we um, go straight, go, not go straight to, is this doing a job or not? Why would we add this extra step? Another way of thinking about it is that our traditional approach is if I know a thing, then I can do a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why do we have to know first? What if the doing is in the knowing? What if the only way that we can understand a phenomenon is to begin to interact with it? Um, this approach, if we take the, our stories as hammers, right? If we ask ourselves, do they work to accomplish what it is that we're trying to accomplish there? Do they, how do they interact with the world? Then the job is instead um, not the correspondence game. Do my ideas match the world, right? How do my ideas match the world mm -hmm. or correspond? But what impact am I having on the world right now? right? It's a completely different orientation. Instead okay. of comparing what's happening in front of me to my ideas about what should be happening or what would happening, happen in this theory or whatever, I'm instead um, uh, comparing what's happening in the world to what it is that I am doing. I am seeing the behavior in front of me mm -hmm. in the context of my own behavior. Um, and that is sort of the meaning of the behavior. So if I ask you, if I say, uh, good morning, how are things going? Mm -hmm. Right. And you say they're going terribly. Right. Instead of sort of tucking that in and going, man, I was expecting that this week he would be having a better week because of this talk that we had this time. Oh, am I a terrible therapist? And comparing everything that I just observed mm -hmm. you saying to some idea about how it should be mm -hmm. or some idea about who, how you should be. Instead, I'm seeing that as a direct consequence of the words that I just said, good morning, how are you? And you're learning history in similar contexts, right? Mm -hmm. All of the times that you've come to this room, um, the different consequences that different responses to how are you yeah. have had, um, the, your different experience with good morning, how are you? Right, your behavior is understood as a function of my behavior okay. and of our our history mm -hmm. um, with things like that. Um, so, you know, the the foundations I think um, here with respect to act um, are really: are we playing the function game? Are we playing the correspondence game? Is it our job to understand, to know, and then do, or it is our job to do so that we can know? I'll pause mm. there. <laughs> Gosh, I, I wish I had a non-secular way to say amen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, okay, so we've evolved to interact with language this way. Mm -hmm. And what you're asking me to do and uh, what, what I'm being asked to do from this CBS perspective is to untangle from all of that evolution, right? Yeah, we're talking absolutely. about millions of years of, of learning in the making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're not the first tradition to suggest that this might be important, right? Mm -hmm. It's in tons of spiritual traditions, for example, in contemplative traditions um, that, you know, maybe, um, maybe our participation in the, in the play or the story or this kind of fake world um, that we construct isn't the most useful thing ever. So we're mm -hmm. certainly not the first to suggest that it might be useful to step away from our representations of the world and to engage the world, regardless of what those representations sort of bring to the table. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, I think what contextualism offers us is an opportunity to approach science like that. And, you know, therapy as an extension of that science to the extent that we're doing empirically supported treatments. It's not just about doing the stuff that the science gods, you know, blessed. Um, it's also about paying attention to how the impact of our interventions is working mm -hmm. in, in an individual level. 
Um, so this, this approach to understanding the world and to being effective in the world is sort of directly responsive to that. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it takes tons of practice and it's not something that, um, that we're going to talk our way into. Um, you know, I just use several different metaphors and <laughs> several different ways of kind of saying the same thing um, because I'm essentially saying, you know, when people are talking, just see that as behavior. And when you're talking, just see that as contextual shifts in the same way you could observe nonverbal behaviors or any other, any other event in the world. You could look at the two things and how they're occurring, how one is impacting the other and watch the relationship between those two things. In this circumstance, I'm asking therapists to watch <laughs> their behavior and the client's behavior in context. And to uh, really, I mean, I'm really offering a behavioral definition of a therapeutic relationship you know, to some extent. Okay. So are we getting at some of uh, like kind of clinical behavior analysis? Is that, is that? Yeah, so if we took um, the correspondence game and the function game and that whole distinction uh, or that contextualist philosophy and asked ourselves, well, what would the implications be in the room? Um, I think the implications are exactly that, right? Um, attend to the behavior as it's unfolding in front of you and give the client opportunities to practice um, new stuff. Um, specifically with respect to this model, um, you know, to me, my sort of take on clinical behavior analysis is that folks get into trouble because of a, a preponderance or a dominance of aversive control. We learn very easily um, when things are dangerous. You know, we learn mm -hmm. very easily to run, fight, or hide from particular sort of contextual events. Um, you know, functionally speaking, that can take over our repertoire. You know, it's not just this one thing that we learn to avoid. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we can get really good at that kind of learning as at aversive control as a kind of learning. Um, and that can come to dominate our, um, our repertoire. Could we, could we maybe pause right now and do a little practice mm -hmm. around that? Because I'm noticing myself just having all these uh, anxieties as you talk. Like, <laughs> sure. Oh shit, she's gonna stop talking soon and I'm gonna have to ask her a question. Nice. And, and she just said like 50,000 things I want to ask questions about, but I can't keep track of them. And awesome. hopefully she'll just talk for the next hour straight. Nice. <laughs> well, I probably could. So, <laughs> so if you were, um, so th this is interesting because there'll be a little shift here. So mm -hmm. if you were sitting in front of me as my client, mm -hmm. um, I would not be talking this much. I would yeah. be talking you know, very, Key very point. little. Good, important PSA. Don't explain act to your clients. <laughs> Don't, and uh, certainly not contextualist philosophy. This if week I'm we're going to read chapter two. That's right. If I'm explaining contextualist <laughs> I'm talking to my client about playing the correspondence game. I have left the room. I'm no longer doing uh, clinical behavior analysis. Um, so yeah, let's pop in. Um, so the first job then from, from my perspective or my approach to clinical behavior analysis, the first job mm -hmm. um, is already done because the first job would be for me to evoke some behavior under aversive control. Okay. Um, and you just told me you've got some stuff going on. Now yeah. you leaned in a little bit, right? You engaged in a behavior that's probably practiced for you. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing when behavior under aversive control starts to increase, I'm going to pause and I'm going to do something different. So you just leaned in, you just admitted what was going on for you. You mm -hmm. sort of said that out loud. You can almost imagine like if, if, before you came to this work, there was a really, really narrow repertoire under aversive control that what you just did over time is practiced one little new behavior in the context of an aversive, admit it, 
say it out loud and see what yeah. happens, right? Um, uh -huh. Say it out loud and ask for, ask for help. Um, so that might be a new behavior that is now um, evoked, you know, by aversives in your experience and probably a little bit by uh, the stuff that you notice when your behavior is under aversive control. Um, so if we, yeah, go ahead. So I, I wonder if you could just um, lean in a little bit to that behavior under aversive control for anyone who's listening who's like, what the hell is she talking about? Yeah. So what I mean is anything that functions as running, fighting, or hiding. Okay. Um, so physically speaking, but also not physically speaking. Anything that the function of the behavior, the way the behavior works, and the mm -hmm. reason why the behavior is a thing is because it serves to get us away from something. But there's another element that's important because if you just take that kind of positive negative reinforcement, are you getting away? Are you moving towards? Mm -hmm. It's actually can be kind of hard to disentangle sometimes. So if I go outside mm -hmm. and it's super hot. It's not one or the other. Well, it doesn't have to be not at the level of the behavior, but if we look at the level of the repertoire, it's an important distinction. So if I walk outside and it's really, really cold and I put on a coat, right? Mm -hmm. We could say, well, are you moving towards warmth? Or are you moving away from cold? Right? Mm -hmm. What, what is it? You know, how do we know? Is that positively? I'm moving away from you right now. Cause you just asked me that question. There you <laughs> go. Well, it's, it's a fair, right. But it's a fair problem with that way of splitting the world. Uh, okay. So if you're thinking as functional contextualist for a minute, I would yeah. say that doesn't help me to work actually just saying, okay, am I moving towards or moving away? That doesn't help me to work. I'm going to go out one step and say, well, what happens to the whole repertoire under aversive control? And what happens to the whole repertoire under aversive control is that it gets very tight and very narrow and very difficult to disrupt mm. different things different events in the world things that are happening at that moment mm -hmm. are really unable to sort of um, it's quite difficult quite challenging for them to serve as context for them to serve as learning opportunities they don't tend to evoke new behaviors they don't tend to to be um, uh, new consequences right learning that's not about getting away is very difficult when your whole repertoire is about getting away, yeah, okay. right? So if, if I went outside and put on a coat and you said, oh man, is that under aversive control or under appetitive control? There's some things that you could look at. Like you could look at how likely I am I to then be able to shift to another behavior that has nothing to do with me getting warm or getting away from cold, right? Am I able to easily shift to a new thing? So now I've got my coat on mm -hmm. and I can um, take it off if I need to, cause it's a little too bulky. I can have a conversation with you. Um, I can pay attention to things other than and if I'm cold or hot at any one moment, right? To the extent that my repertoire broadens out and that actually putting on the coat orients me towards lots of different aspects of my world and lots of different sources of stimulation and my repertoire gets broad and flexible until some other thing, you know, kind of comes up and takes control, then that's behavior under repetitive control. Right now, to the extent that my, my repertoire stays really rigid and you're like, well, you have your coat now, so you're all good. And I'm like, I just don't know if this coat's gonna be enough. Maybe I should go and get some gloves or, you know, maybe let me get a scarf. I really shouldn't have taken a shower right before I came outside because now my hair is wet. Am I cold? Am I warm enough? I'm just not sure. Maybe we shouldn't go, mm -hmm. right? To the extent that I'm continuing <laughs> to sort of um, perseverate on the aversive to mm -hmm. the extent that that's still the thing that's dominating my behavior, even though I've engaged in this, you know, in this behavior of putting on the coat to the extent it's really hard to get me to pay attention to anything else to the extent that that continues to dominate my repertoire that's really a behavior under aversive control so if we think about that in the room right it means that in any one moment if i'm not sure if somebody's running fighting or hiding mm -hmm. right um by let's say telling a joke 
um, or if they're, um, if they're actually sort of engaging in behavior that's productive and moving them towards some place where they can learn, all I have to do is try to get them to do a new thing, <laughs> um, try to intervene on their repertoire and okay. see if they can shift to a different function that's sort of guiding their behavioral stream. Can they shift their attention and the focus of their behavior to something new there? Um, so that might be a good place to do a little, a little okay. role play. Yeah. You want to pop, pop in as a client? Yeah. So should I continue on maybe as this, what I brought up in terms of some of the anxieties? Yeah, or sure. I'm going to, um, it doesn't matter to me. Um, we're going to pretend if you do do that, I'm going to pretend like I wasn't just like, <laughs> telling this big lesson though. I'm wondering, I'm going to set a timer if that's cool with you. It's kind of yeah. what I do at consultation. So yeah. Um, we'll give it, uh, we'll give it five minutes and I'll, um, hmm. I'll do a little, a little demonstration there. So I'll just start by, uh, by asking you if you're still feeling anxious and let me start the timer. So more solid, you still have a bunch of anxiety on board or mm. what's going on? Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know about a bunch, but I do, I feel, I do feel like a little bit, um, like I'm on a, I've got to get on a train tracks kind of, and I've, okay. and, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about, and I'm and I want to make as best use of your time and, and and extrapolate as much as useful information as possible for anybody listening. And and I have kind of like this voice, like, well, you're not you're not smart enough to to really know what best questions to ask. That's really going to make this like the most useful podcast ever. Yeah. Maybe not. Not maybe that that's an extreme, but like, <laughs> not just that was like maybe that. Is, so so I didn't mean to say that. What I meant to say was just you know just make it as useful as as possible. Yeah. It could be. Well, and, and I know you tried to walk it back, but I'm not going to let you walk it back. <laughs> okay. Because right. I'm just, I'm noticing what your mind offered there, um, you know, was it's got to be the best podcast ever uh -huh. um, because there was so much richness there when yeah. I asked you to check in on your anxiety. Um, I wonder, so when I say anxiety, um, what else do you notice? Like, can you notice things happening in your body? Yeah, I've got some tightness in my, in my chest. Mm. my breathing is is a little bit short i'm feeling warm and uh um i would say i would say like just attending it's harder for me to to like you know i'm, I'm I, I lose focus i kind of go other places and go to yeah. that probably yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah what's it like to tell me that right now what does it feel like um i don't know i i feel like an opening, like uh, uh, like it's not that big of a deal. Um, yeah, it's just there. You know, it's not really. Yeah. I want to ask. Um, I want to ask. Uh, kind of with with this here, so you're sort of noticing a little bit of opening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can probably do a little scan. You got some skills there. You can check in on, on your chest and mm -hmm. temperature in your skin. Um, I wonder kind of as I say those things back, um, does your mind offer any guesses about what I might be thinking or about what your listeners, you know, might think here? What happens when I ask that? Mm. No, I, 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 not really, no. I think uh, we've, we, my mind and I have established you as a benevolent figure. 
<laughs> so your, your mind offers that one, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's what it Probably. offers. Yeah. So yeah. what? Uh, so if you guessed, what kinds of things I might be thinking? Um, um well, that okay, okay. That, I guess I could still answer. It doesn't have to be judgmental. So notice that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My mind has nothing negative to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's interesting, right there. Yeah. I'm, it's like on guard. Yeah. On guard. <laughs> With yeah. a, you know. um, it's okay, she's safe. Well, and, and yeah, of course. So it's okay, she's safe. It's okay, mm -hmm. she's safe. Mm -hmm. um, what, is, what does safe feel like if you imagine what I'm thinking mm -hmm. right now? So I'm hearing two questions there. I'm hearing how's it feel and what am, what am I imagining you think to be thinking? Mm -hmm. Sure, whichever one feels more accessible. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I imagine you uh, really um, living in values right now and be agreeing to be on here to to help uh, because you agree with what I'm doing and you're you want to share what you have and that feeds you. And so, how does that feel to notice? It feels really nice. I feel like just uh, yeah, it feels really good. I feel some joy. Cool. Yeah. What do you pay attention to in your body that um, that you label as joy, or that that feels like? Joy? Um, I just feel like a like a warmth and some like just good vibes. Some I don't know uh, some tingling and you know just like uh, just feel like more alive in my face. Cool. Yeah. That's very cool. I wonder if um, if you could sort of step out of yourself right now. Um, and kind of look on you sharing that joy with me um, and us having this little interaction. Um, what shows up? Do you have any responses or reactions to, to yourself, to our interactions? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I have more, more joy and gratitude to, to be. Um, <laughs> to Time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have to, so I have, I feel terrible about that, but I, um, I have to cut myself off when the timer goes off. This is yeah. my rule because when I train and I go to these workshops, people are like having these deep connections mm -hmm. and then I start going around time, time. Yeah. Um, so I try yeah. to, I appreciate that. Over. Yeah. So, um, so I guess first it might be interesting. Well, you're, this is your show. I was about to start prompting you. <laughs> unpack it with do me. it do it come on okay so what so if if we were in consultation um mm -hmm. so the next the next question i asked you not supervision you, but consultation yes because <laughs> i'm not legally responsible for what you do marcel um, <laughs> if uh so if we if we were in consultation right now the first thing i would just say is okay so marcel what'd you notice from that interaction mm -hmm. um and we'd we'd start to unpack okay so, we could okay. we could do that cool okay so what'd you notice I noticed that I felt like um, more connected uh, to what we're doing and uh, less connected to that um, worry. Is there a moment that stands out for you? I would say when I... I, I struggle. My memory makes me look really stupid. I have to say. <laughs> um, but but I, I don't know. I felt it when at some point and I started to feel like my eyes water and I felt like um, I don't remember what we were talking about. Maybe you remember what 
I, I don't remember, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and that's fine, of course. Okay. Like, you know, it's really what stands out is really the question. Yeah, um, okay, yeah. So, so yeah, there was a shift there for sure, yeah. Yeah. So, so if I were to kind of make sense of, of what was happening, um, you know, we started with an aversive in the room, um, mm-hmm. and, and we don't actually have to know always what the aversive is. In, in our case, you had lots of good words. You, you kind of told me, you know, how it is that, that this is showing up for you and what it is that you're struggling mm-hmm. um, with. And from this model, like, I don't really need to know what the words are that you put around it. That's, that's one function of the aversive context is the story that you tell me about it. Another function is the way it feels in your body. Another function might be your emotional response, right? The function of a particular context is just any behavior you engage in, in its presence, (laughs) any behavior that's likely to happen in the presence of that context. So if I'm watching and, um, and I see behaviors that are consistent with running, fighting, or hiding for you, and in this case, you just said, I'm totally, really anxious, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and describe a few other things. So I, I knew that running, fighting, or hiding was happening. So the aversive is present, right? I, I might not know exactly which thing or which word or, or whatever that I mm-hmm. said that, that brought it up, but, but it's present. It's psychologically present because you're running, fighting, or hiding. Um, so then, you know, my job is without taking that away, without taking the aversive out of the room and saying, oh, it's fine, you don't have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Can I add to the context, add to the context, add to the context to get new behaviors to occur in the presence of the aversive? Okay. Just like in exposure therapy, right? We might bring the snake in the room and then have you do lots of other stuff in the presence of the snake until the snake is there and you know you can walk towards it, but also you can do all kinds of other stuff. You can have your whole repertoire at hand even when the snake is present. So we could go back and peel out different things that I said. I asked you uh, what you were noticing in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked you to notice what your mind was saying. Um, when you took it back, uh, I you know, asked you not to take it back and, and kind of highlighted a particular piece. Um, I asked you to take some perspective. Um, we noticed that, you know, what that, um, that sort of what your mind offered there in terms of, um, in terms of the negative, right? There's nothing to say there. There's nothing interesting oh, yeah. there because yeah, yeah. you're benevolent. Um, that was part know. of the shift, I think. Oh, yeah. 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 Noticing, noticing your mm-hmm. mind there. Um, so each of those things, we could, we could at the mid-level say, okay, so there was some selfless context and there was some diffusion and there was some present moment, and maybe some acceptance. Um, and I can tell you 100% that's not what I'm thinking in the moment. In the moment, I'm thinking, can he do this here? Can he do this here? Is this a place we could work? What else can he do here? Can he do this? Can he try this? That's the and- adding of the context. That's absolutely. So every question I ask, every, even every goofy laugh, every Mm -hmm. comment, everything that I do are little shifts in context to see if, if we can, uh, if we can work. Can can I pause you there just to, could you, could you, could you say in a different way, adding of context? Sure. Um, shifting, adding new things to your world, um, shifting your world, presenting new stimuli, um, giving you, giving you new stuff, <laughs> you know, and it's hard because it looks like just talking, right? Uh-huh. But, but words change the world. Um, you know, words are, I mean, they're 
the way that they come to us is through physical changes in air pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, they ha can suck up functions. I think about words as being super sticky. They can take on functions of lots of different things. Yeah. And yeah. So when I say take on functions, all I mean is that they can become functionally meaningful. They can impact your behavior really readily. Yeah. So in any time I'm doing or saying anything that's offering you a shift in your behavior, anytime your world broadens out a little bit, we could say it that way, right? A mm -hmm. shift in context might be not taking the snake away, but saying not only is there a snake, but there's a sky. And not only are there a snake mm -hmm. and a sky, but there's also leaves. I see. Okay, that's very helpful. And so about, each yeah. of those pieces, you know, yeah. can you notice what's happening in your body? What do you suppose I'm thinking? What happens yeah. when I say that? Um, so, so, gonna... so it's kind of myopic, right? We, that's the, the aversive control is that's all yes. I can see. I'm doing this, you know, close yep. my hand and you're helping me to open it up. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. So aversive control, very few things are, are context, right? Very few things are actually influencing behavior. It's tight mm -hmm. and narrow. The mm -hmm. world is tight and narrow. Mm -hmm. I think myopic is a great way of saying it or a, a little restricted view, you know, mm -hmm. a little viewfinder that you can only see a little bit at a time. Yeah. And my job is to do things that help you to gradually broaden that out. As mm -hmm. you broaden context out, remember context and behavior are just you know, two sides of the same coin. Really the function is the unit, the functional relationship between the two. So as I broaden out context, your repertoire is broadening out mm -hmm. in the presence of this really scary snake or of anxiety evoking context or whatever yeah. the situation is in the context of that, all of a sudden you're practicing new behaviors that you're unlikely right, to engage in out in the world before we did this intervention. And that's probably not entirely true for you because you've got some skills. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm um, prompting, would be another way of saying shifting context, I'm prompting new behaviors that are gonna be that much more likely when you're out in the world in that same circumstance. Okay. So every, everything that I do is about giving you a chance to practice a new thing. Yeah. Um, we find a place that we, we find an aversive, we get you running, fighting or hiding, mm -hmm. and then we find a place that we can kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, and that finding a place where we can work is just a metaphor for using language to construct a world where you can start to practice new behaviors. And it's our job to make sure that the snake is still present. That way, when it shows up out in your life, mm -hmm. <laughs> out in world, um, all of that stuff, paying attention to your body, noticing what your mind is doing, all of that stuff is that much more probable next time. Okay. We don't have to make a plan. We don't have to do the hope and plan or the plan and hope model where we make a plan, you know, um, and decide that you're going to practice this three times a day. You know, we could do that and we could, you know, maybe we know that those words are going to organize your mm -hmm. behavior later. You know, but my interest and the thing that I feel passionate about is let's practice it right here and now. Let's practice expanding your repertoire yeah. in the presence of the scary stuff that happens in your world, such that next time you've got you've got more behaviors. Um, you know, Skinner talked about freedom as freedom from aversive control, and that doesn't mean freedom from scary stuff. Yeah. It doesn't mean freedom from pain. Um, it means freedom from the control part. Um, and if there's not control, then eventually, you know, they don't, they're not actually functionally aversives at all. You know, they're interesting aspects of our experience. Hmm. So what, what's showing up for you now? What are you chewing on now? Uh, hoping that um, the, the sound of the wind coming in isn't uh, affecting too much the, the, quality the audio, the audio. Quality. <laughs> I just closed the thing here, the, the, the window. Um, okay. Are we jumping back in? Is that what's happening? 
Or what are we oh, doing? Uh, I just okay, talk like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got in consultation mode. So yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so a, a, a lot is showing up for me. So I guess I want to I want to double back a little bit on the mid level uh-huh. terms. How important is it that that uh, the general public, the cl- not general, public, the clinicians get uh-huh. past mid level terms that climb the ladder higher? Yeah, I would, I would actually say climb the ladder lower. <laughs> I think about it like a pyramid. I think it's okay. super important. I mean, yeah. to the extent that people are-, are Like just, Amway, that kind of pyramid? Or? <laughs> yeah, kind of, okay. uh, except of ideas, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Amway of ideas. Yeah, you know, like um, I, think, I think to the extent that clinicians are satisfied with what mid-level terms are doing for them, this yep. is how much of a functional contextualist I am. Uh-huh. To the extent that folks are happy with what mid-level terms are doing for them, awesome. I don't, I don't see anything, you know, anything more. Um, and to the extent that they can relate to like, okay, I saw some fusion and then I, I did an exercise that's a diffusion exercise. And then they said they understood, shit, there's 44 minutes left of our mm-hmm. session. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, or to the extent that they're like, you know, watching somebody that's really expert. Um, and, and I have a few people in mind here watching them just work and thinking like, like cool. Pro- give me some props. Give me some props. <laughs> um, well, like Robin Walzer uh-huh. is an extraordinary master. I mean, she's you know mad skilled. Uh, yeah. Lisa Poyne. Um, I mean, just really super sensitive and and creative. Like mm. just coming up with interventions and metaphors on the fly in ways that um, that really you stop and go like, so what were they thinking from those mid level terms that got them to then think of that, right? Because the mid-level terms are ideas. (laughs) That's the only place that they can exist. All middle-level terms collapse context, behavior, and function into one term. Any mid-level term, so personality variable, a diagnostic category, um, even a mid-level act term, it collapses context, behavior, and function. And when it does that, when it collapses context and behavior and function, there's nowhere to put it besides in the organism. That's what we do. So if you say, oh boy, he's really aggressive, right? That would be maybe a mid-level term we could say. It collapses like what is a likely behavior in lots of different circumstances or in particular triggering Mm. circumstances. It takes context, it takes behavior, and it smashes them together. And then there's nothing to do with it besides put it in the person, right? And this is the dominant sort of view in psychology. So we say he is really aggressive. You know, from our perspective, we wouldn't be satisfied with that because we'd say, under what conditions? How can I make it happen? And then how can I expand out that repertoire such that, you know, aggressive is a sort of a useless term, right? Um, and it could, we could say the same thing for a diagnostic label. We could say the same thing for um, a case conceptualization. Mm-hmm. You know, are there, are our terms going to sensitize us to the behavior that's occurring in the room and to the, um, the impact that we are having on the behavior that's occurring in the room? Um, and, you know, I think contextualism and by extension behavior analysis, it's the only account. I would say it's the only account of therapeutic process process that actually includes us as the therapist in that account and that's because it's the only account that I know of that has an explicit an explicit role for the immediate context 
you know, I don't understand your, um, your behavior in terms of, you know, naming some anxiety. I don't understand that as a way that you are or a product of you or an aspect of your personality. I don't understand it as you at all. I understand it as a product of your learning history and the thing that I just did right before that. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And maybe the ways that I've responded to you, you know, naming anxiety in the mm -hmm. past. Everything that I observe is a function of our shared experience that we're having, which means that anything, any way that I understand your behavior has action implications for me. You know, if I go, oh, cool, he's really able to get into his skin and he's really able to tell me, so, you know, so easily, so readily what's happening there. I wonder what happens if I plop the mind into it, you know, can that same awareness extend there? And if I ask for feeling words, you know, can, can, is that, is that a piece of this repertoire and what mm -hmm. if we perspective? And what if we slip outside of the, of the self and sort of play with, you know, experiences of the self? We could have dipped in on some repetitives, mm -hmm. um, you know, to see if there's some value stuff that can show up here. Um, and actually you got there anyway, um, just mm -hmm. when I asked you to notice. Um, so all of that, I think, I don't know how to do that with mid-level terms. Okay. I don't know how to do it that fast. The only thing that it orients me to, functionally speaking, would be an exercise that fits into that category. Mm -hmm. um, and when people are doing exercises, um, you know, it's not as creative as I want to be. And half the time, I can't even, they're not even behaving. Mm. I'm just, you know, if, I'm, if, if a client has their eyes closed and we're doing leaves on a stream, um, I have no idea what function yeah. any of that intervention is having. Yeah. At the end, I might pause and stop and say, okay, what did you notice? And really, it's probably more of a product of me saying, what did you notice? And whatever was happening directly before that. Mm -hmm. You know, once they start getting further and further and further away from all of that private behavior, the less useful any of that is going to be. Mm. Um, it's going to be more related to how I responded to the first thing they said when I said, what did you notice? Mm -hmm. Than to what happened 10 minutes before. Um, and, and, even if it does have an incredible impact and somebody's mind is blown and they're like, wow, cognitive diffusion, um, I won't be able to see it happen in the room such that I can track it later. Mm -hmm. right? So if your eyes are closed <laughs> and you're not responding to me because I've directed you not to, and I'm just talking at you, I'm just kind of doing this plan and hope thing. I'm just kind of hoping mm -hmm. that my words are functioning like they're supposed to, mm -hmm. but there's some kind of magic happening inside of you that's unseen to me. Um, and that disempowers me from being able to track that later. If I don't know what, let's say, if we are using mid-level terms, if I don't know what fusion and defusion look like in your repertoire, mm. then how do I know when you're fused? You know, if I don't know what avoidance looks like, if I don't know when you're run, running, fighting, or hiding, um, except when you tell me, oh, that functioned as avoidance, or I was really avoiding there. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you don't have that skill, then that would mean that we can't work. Yeah. And on that note, I have a question. And I was talking to, when I, when I met with uh, Franz Duall, mm -hmm. um, we were talking about just his, um, how he, how his observational work is. And I mean, he, you know, he obviously studies social behavior, but, but also just individual behavior. And why, why do you think it is that it, we don't talk more about ob observation of behavior in teaching clinicians? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, not, and not just, not just verbal behavior, to be clear. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, I honestly, I mean, I have a couple of reactions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one is that 
I think it's because we don't typically think functionally, you know, so we, ha we try, I mean, there's like the body language literature. That's mm -hmm. like, if people's arms are crossed, they are defensive. Yeah, and if yeah, they're yeah. not making Covering their contact, mouth is contempt. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So there's, but that's not consistent across humans. Mm -hmm. It's, it's only when we take a functional perspective, I think, you know, for yeah. me, it's only when we take that functional perspective and we say, I can only understand this person's repertoire in the context of what I just did and mm -hmm. everything else that's going on. Mm -hmm. And in the context of their whole repertoire of my learning history with them, it means that every single client that I have, I'm learning their repertoire. Mm -hmm. I'm, my first session is not just about gathering information about, um, you know, about their life, about how they see their problems. Mm -hmm. My first session is getting a sense of what they look like when they're running, fighting, or hiding. I'm mm -hmm. um, getting a sense mm -hmm. of where their skills are when they're mm -hmm. running, fighting, or hiding in terms of awareness, in terms of intention. Um, you know, I want to see what that looks like because yeah. it's going to look fundamentally different on every client. You know, for some clients, when they're really looking away a bunch, they're not avoiding eye contact. They're paying attention to what their mind is saying so that they can tell me back what's happening in their head. For other clients, if they're looking away, oh, this is all useless. There's there's mm -hmm. none of the content mm -hmm. of what they're saying is going to be useful because yeah. it's sensitive yeah. to some other function. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I thought of it because you're talking about observing what's aversive and, and what's not in session. And I mean, the body tells so much. We don't Absolutely. talk about it that much. I mean, I, I don't know how you teach, but I just, how I was taught was not, I think the extent of, of what I was, was given in my graduate training was listen with your eyes. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and yeah. And I'm training something very different. So I train people to absolutely pay attention to the, the entire behavioral stream, mm -hmm. you know, at any one point. I mean, and that's, you know, again, you can kind of hear the functional contextualism there. The, the organism is engaging in all of these different behaviors that we could chop up in hundreds of thousands of different ways. You know, yeah. she is teaching, she is talking, she is recording a podcast, mm -hmm. she is sitting, she is gesturing, you know, and those are just the behaviors that are publicly observable. I'm also like digesting and, mm -hmm. you know, thinking. Mm -hmm. So we could chop that behavioral stream up into lots of little pieces. Um, so in the room, you know, there's this stance, I think that the function game allows for of kind of stepping back and hearing the words as behavior that's unfolding and watching the body in conjunction with that and tracking, you know, is there a pattern in what the person does first and then what they do second and what they do third and absolutely doing more than just listening with our eyes because we're, the only way that we can understand all of that behavior, we can guess at its function mm -hmm. and then test that guess is by intervening, is by doing stuff. That is our assessment. Mm -hmm. So if I say, um, you know, what feelings show up here? I mean, just as you talk about this, do you notice any feelings? Mm -hmm. And somebody says, you know, um, I'm frustrated, you know, and I can see them experiencing frustration. They can dip into their skin. And I'm like, you know, check. Like that's yeah. a thing that they can do here. If I say what feelings are showing up here and they say, I can't believe I'm doing this again. You know, here we are like having the same conversation. I still haven't made any changes. Mm -hmm. Like they were not successful <laughs> at telling me what feelings came up. I might add a little scaffolding, a little bit of support there, a little more contextual support. I might say, uh, you know, you sound frustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, does it feel like frustration in your mm -hmm. body right now? Or what shows up when I say frustration to you, um, you know, Every time I speak,
speak or act, I'm, I'm kind of giving them a job mm-hmm. and seeing if they can do that job in the presence of aversive control, um, in the presence of the tough stuff. Yeah. Um, it also means that I can give them breaks, right? Like it doesn't have to be like pounding. I think sometimes in, in act, we hear like relief is bad because mm-hmm. like avoidance is problematic. Yeah. Um, you know, it means that sometimes the best thing that I can do for the client's learning is to shift the context in a way that that gives them a little break and sensitizes mm-hmm. them to some other mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. and I can bring the aversive yeah. back in. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I want, I, I this is a topic I wanted to get to, eventually, and and so I, I have noticed sometimes my presence can be assaultive mm-hmm. in the room, mm-hmm. and and you know me, you know being kind of working on things or whatever. It's like, I think, oh, I, I just need to always be super present, but that can be way too much for some folks. Well, especially if a present me at present means I'm, I'm <laughs> laying aversives at your feet. I'm throwing snakes at you. Yeah. You know? yeah. Unless I'm inter- yeah. Exactly. Unless I'm interested in flooding, you know, um, but <laughs> the, uh, like in, a, in our interaction, there was a moment where I sort of, I said, uh, I'm not going to let you walk that back. And, mm-hmm. and we laughed. And that actually felt to me like a really important shift. I was, okay. I was disclosing my process, making mm-hmm. sure that the stuff happening inside me is part that's impacting my behavior is part of our shared experience as well. So mm-hmm. bringing that out and making that public context for you. Um, I was responding really authentically. Like I thought it was funny that you tried to do that and that I wasn't going to let you. Yeah. Yeah. a little yeah. awkward and hopeful that that was okay yeah. it was a little tentative you know people could say well aren't you you just made him laugh and kind of distracted him from the scary stuff isn't that a problem but the thing that you did right before that right um was continue to observe your thoughts so unless the thing that you had done right before that was run away mm-hmm. <laughs> was to engage in some behavior under aversive control there's no problem with me giving you some relief. It would be like if we said, well, you know, I walked outside and, um, and I thought, oh, I can't believe it's raining. I hate this. And I considered for a moment going back inside and just not even going to work. And then suddenly, like, the sun came out and it stopped raining. You know, that's going to reinforce my avoidance. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, or like I am uh, have enough experience with the weather that I don't connect those two things mm-hmm. and that the context just shifted in a way that gave me a little break and maybe I can joyously experience, you know, that break. And, and we could see that it wasn't strengthening avoidance to the extent that, that my repertoire was then, you know, broader and more flexible and over time broader and more flexible. Yeah. Yeah, so what this brings up for me is we're, we're battling millions of years of evolution here, mm-hmm. really going against the stream. And for anybody who's new to therapy, you're, you're just settling into you know, being able to sit across from someone without being lost in the conversation with your mind. I mean, there's, there's so much going on. There really is. Um, what I would say is I think we would be better off to train people like this from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because when we add lots of different conceptualizations, especially if we're in a program that sort of has a tool set, you know, mm-hmm. mindset, the idea is like collect lots of tools so you know how to use the one that's going to match that mm-hmm. client. 
I mean, we're, we're talking about an incredible amount of fluency. You know, how, how expert would you have to be with each theory to be able to have, let's mm. say, let's even make it a small number, four different theories of how therapy works and to mm. be really good with those four theories, mm. good enough that you could, in a first session, assess somebody's difficulties and which of these orienting theories is going to be most effective for that particular client. I mean, I have no idea um, yeah. what kind of learning history somebody would have to do yeah. to be expert in that way. You know, what if instead we taught people that in this particular context, you know, because you're right, it is millions of years of evolution, but also we're really good at stimulus control. We're really good at learning behaviors that are discriminated by particular contexts that work in particular places. Mm -hmm. Think about the kid that knows that, you know, at, and I say knows, but the kid that at grandma's house is very likely to ask for a fourth candy and a fifth mm -hmm. candy and a sixth candy and another TV show. And they wouldn't even ask for that at mm -hmm. mom's house mm -hmm. because it's never worked at mom's house. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so can we learn, you know, can we train therapists right from the beginning that in this context, language is different? You know, in this context, the words that we use, we don't check to say, is the person understanding? Am I getting my point across? Are they understanding? Is what's in their head matching what's in my head? That we, here, we don't have to play the correspondence game. We're off the hook there. Okay. It'll play itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> We cannot get away from it. It will play itself. Yeah. Eventually it all comes down to correspondence. And what we can do instead is just see what happens. We can just push on the world, mm -hmm. you know, um, and see what the client is able to do. We can have particular ideas about what might help them to get free, um, like being able to take perspective, being able to imagine, you know, meaningful outcomes, mm -hmm. being able to walk towards things that are painful or uncomfortable, being able to be in contact with their immediate experience. You know, we don't have to chunk all, chuck all of those, um, but we can sort of just say, okay, what if the job is just to uh, watch what they're doing <laughs> right in front of you, mm -hmm. not try to guess at anything that's happening yeah. out yeah. of the room per se, but take even a report of what's happening outside of the room as behavior that's occurring right now, mm -hmm. behavior that has a very particular function mm -hmm. right now in this moment and that we can expand upon. Yeah. That it needs to be expanded upon. Yeah. Yeah. And for so anybody, what if we taught like uh, that go ahead. From the beginning. Yeah. Just what if we taught like that from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. We wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to sort of put away all these habits of mm -hmm. that I'm calling the correspondence game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I think that the, the further along this path I get, the more I see behaviorism as just essential to, to mm -hmm. knowing in terms of the work that we do. Cause what do we, I mean, what, what other um, science in terms of psychology describes the fundamentals of human behavior like that. I don't, I don't know that any, any other theory does. And well, in, in a way that presents us with, with a job as clinicians, right? In a way that includes us in the analysis in an active way. We're not mm -hmm. passive observers. Mm -hmm. We are active observers. And the only way that our observations can be meaningful is if we're doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> because we can only understand their behavior as an act in context. So we yeah. can only understand that behavior in this particular context. So yeah, what other analysis, um, you know, provides us with the opportunity to know by doing, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, to, 
to, um, to continue to interact. And it, it means that, you know, and, and in interacting, learning and learning and learning and constantly learning, mm-hmm. you know, it also means that we're being shaped by the client. So to mm-hmm. the extent that, you know, I'm not stuck comparing what's happening with you to some ideas in my head and constantly sort of departing to do that or following some rule, be really mm-hmm. present, be really present, be really present. Um, and that means that my repertoire is broader and more flexible. Mm-hmm. There's more appetitives in our interaction. So for me, um, I'm learning you, you know, I'm learning your repertoire. I'm learning what works. Um, I'm, I'm uh, you know, really like so many of these behaviors that I might engage in with a client that I've, I've spent some time with that I've had, you know, a couple weeks with, for example, um, you know, I am able to, um, I'm able to respond in ways that don't involve me pausing and thinking, should I do some diffusion here mm. or, or whatever. The metaphor that I use sometimes is it's like, uh, it's like throwing clay. It's like pottery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, every chunk of clay is really different and it's different from day to day. Like here in Louisiana, we usually have like 90% humidity and mm-hmm. up like the difference in throwing clay when it's 90% humidity and when it's 98% humidity, the same chunk of clay is going to behave entirely differently. Mm. And one chunk of clay is going to be different from the other. And not just that, but the product of where I actually kind of put my hands on the clay um, is also a function of the temperature of my body temperature of what I had for breakfast, my dexterity. Did I type a bunch the day before? Right. So there's this, this sort of infinite number of things that are impacting how exactly do I want to put my thumb right now? Mm-hmm. Um, how much pressure do I want to put on my pinkies? You know, all of those, these little tiny behaviors that are just moving our fingers. And there's no way that we could account for all of them in kind of a mechanistic way. Yeah. Imagine a chart where it's like, you know, okay, the air temperature is this and the humidity is this and I ate cornflakes. <laughs> and, and like, meanwhile, the, you know, the clay is falling off of the, you know, flying mm-hmm. off of the wheel mm-hmm. or, or you know, it's the same thing here. I want to catch yeah. behaviors in flight. I want to massage the repertoire. Um, I don't even, you know, potters will tell you they don't even always know what this piece of clay was going to be until they got their hands in mm. it. I don't know what, you know, valued living necessarily looks like for my clients. I don't know what psychological flexibility as an endpoint or when they're ready to do this work on their own looks like. Yeah. Um, you know, instead, um, my job is to put my hands in the clay, to start spinning the wheel, to get them behaving, and to start interacting with their behavior in such a way that I can shape it towards something that feels, you know, more free and more flexible. And that, you know, I know it's time to discharge when people are learning. They've got the skills to learn from their situation without intervention, Mm -hmm. just to move around the world and learn stuff that's not just new ways to run, fight, or hide. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Humans are so awesome. <laughs> We're so lost and crazy. Oh, and man. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it is. It is quite lovely. Yeah. So I'm going to say that we transition towards closing with that amazing uh, metaphor there cool. that you provided. I'm wondering if, if, you could uh, share where you start people out at your students or consultees as far as uh, books to, to if they're if they're wanting to get deeper in the forest. Yeah. Um, 
I do. Um, I start them off in, in the nitty gritty um, with philosophy papers. Okay. <laughs> um, I actually do. So, um, you know, there's a lovely uh, Hayes, Hayes and Reese, uh, the philosophical core um, okay. paper. Um, there's a, a book, Varieties of Scientific Contextualism, um, and there's several chapters there. Um, I love Linda Hayes' interbehavioral, you know, interbehaviorism uh, work, lots of early, early writing and current writing actually mm -hmm. on, um, on contextualism in okay. the form of interbehaviorism. Um, so when I train, you know, ACT in particular, we start with the philosophy, okay. just contextualism. Um, then we move into behavior analysis, like mm -hmm. Bear, uh, Wolf and Risley and uh, the different dimensions of behavior analysis, okay. aspirations. And we do all of that. And by the time we get to the mid-level terms, um, they're not they're not coming out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. They're natural extensions of this appreciation of uh, the relationship between context and, and behavior. And okay. the our repertoires can get squeezed down versus kind of spread out. Um, so the book that I would recommend hasn't been written yet, uh, but maybe you all will give me a sabbatical soon and I can, uh, I can quick, quick whip that up uh, for everybody. And put, put all of that into one, in, yeah. in between two covers. Exactly, exactly. Do you do you do you have a syllabus that you would be willing to share? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Maybe we sure. could post a couple of your syllabi. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. And, no problem. Uh, and uh, especially for those articles. Um, yeah, I'd be happy. And actually, they they should be almost all, if not all, on the ACBS website, right? It, mm -hmm. um, ACBS has just a, a delightful uh, repository there. A lot of people have posted their own work to share. Okay. Um, and a lot of those authors are active in the organization. Yeah, great. And then also, um, I'm wondering if you could, if you could imagine that Bob Marley was a functional contextualist, how, how, how would he say, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right? You know, let's see. It's hard because I think I think he'd probably just say that uh -huh. if that was if that was what was showing up for him. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, um, it really you know there's it yeah I think I think he would probably just say that um, if that if that was what was uh, what okay. he had to share. You're you're to your core. You're. A Functional contextualist. <laughs> and, and if it didn't work, you know, if the person in front of him got more stuck, uh -huh. he'd say it differently. He'd go, huh, what shows up when I say that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So in an in a audience of a few thousand uh, people, uh, yeah. it would be, he'd be he'd <laughs> contextually appropriately say that. Okay, I, I appreciate that. You stick to your guns. Stick to your guns. So, <laughs> it works. It, it, works. It, it just works in that many circumstances. Okay. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of teasing, but really not. Like, it has implications for everywhere. Yeah. So, like, if I'm if I'm teaching, you know, my job is not to assess am I teaching all of the things in the books, not correspondence game. You know, my job is, am I saying the words that are getting my students to do what I aim for them mm -hmm. to do? If I'm presenting at a conference, you know, those learning objectives aren't just annoying things that I put down for CEs. Mm -hmm. They're actually what I want the audience to be able to do. So it's my yeah. job, if I'm evaluating how am I doing, it's my job to watch what the audience, you know, whoever the behaving organism is, what is yeah. the audience doing? Are yeah. they, are they meeting the objectives? Um, so 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, to the core. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, and Emily is available for consultation and does a lot of trainings. And um, so I'll put I'll put uh, whatever contact information you want me to put um, below in the in the show notes. Has written some some really important books around eating disorders and uh, uh, other things as well. Mm, what else? Anything else that I should say? No, that's about it. Um, just, you know, I'm happy for folks to reach out. I absolutely love this work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a complete delight to be able to talk about it, to be able to train it. Um, I've, I've been really active uh, since the, the pandemic, been really active on online like webinars um, mm -hmm. and uh, training. You know, people want to say you can't do experiential training online. Um, I, you totally can. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it can be really exciting and meaningful. So yeah, yeah folks should reach out if they want to mess with this some more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. I, and I'm going to say what I was saying to you before we started was that uh, anyone who's listening and is thinking, yeah, I'd like to get a, a consulti con consultant, but it's a lot of money. Well, what about just teaming up with a few people and doing, you know, splitting the, splitting the fare and then you get to watch other people practice. I think I, I'm, I'm going to start pushing that as a, as a real viable way to learn. I think it's great. I have, I have a couple of groups that I went to where they were, did a workshop, and then mm -hmm. people who were in the workshop together, yeah. um, you know, we, we meet even just once a month. And yeah. it ends up, I think yeah. it can be very, um, yeah. really nice practice. And then some weeks, you know, you're off and you get to kind of watch and observe and mm -hmm. weigh in on, on, uh, on your assessment without having to be the person that's the client or the therapist mm -hmm. it's it's really rich it's a great experience um yeah. i totally agree I'll okay. yeah so and i want to i want to plug something of mine if that's okay i've got another sure. project called uh it's called honorable evolution and it's a podcast where i celebrate folks who have really prioritized health in their life so cool. i talk to musicians artists badass yoga nuns poets Black belts, white belts, all kinds of folks, and uh, really just uh, trying to figure out how we can uh, make it as a species here. So, yeah, yeah. love it. Yeah. So, uh, that's it, I think. Thanks so much. I am so grateful for you to share your time with me, and I am I'm full right now. Thanks, myself. Yeah. But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger They take a piece of me But I'm getting stronger